Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to The Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, and I'm joined this week by my co-host, Kelly Weil. Kelly, how are you doing? I'm all right. I'm hanging in. All right. Yeah. It's been a busy start to the fall. So first of all, before we get into the swing of things, I just want to give a little shout out to some Fever Dreams listeners I met earlier this month at Andy Kroll's book reading in D.C. about the Seth Rich conspiracy theory. Some folks came up after the event and said they they enjoy the podcast. And one guy, I think, said it's one of his favorite parts of the week. So me too. So always nice to meet some folks out in the wild. Moving on. Okay, Kelly, you've been following a story about a conservative dating app that's having a little trouble taking off. What's going on? So, well, yeah, it's cuffing season, right? You want that. That's a great point. New bow to go out and pick apples, what have you. Well, esteemed colleague Zach Patrizzo has a story from the dating app, The Right Stuff. And if you can recall, this is an app that's been promoted by Kaylee McEnany's sister. It's also running into some legal trouble because as it turns out, there's already an existing right stuff dating app it's also the name of a neo-nazi podcasting network which you never really love that situation when you're looking for the one but what i love from this new zach patrizza reporting shows exactly the tiny tiny dating pool that right stuff users are operating in apparently it's rolled out in dc and the only people using it are dc staffers on the hill who already know and despise each other frankly here's a great quote It's all of Mitch McConnell's staffers, a female Republican operative said, speaking on the condition of anonymity because she still works in pro-Trump politics. I mean, that is that is an extremely specific hell on earth, but solidarity to everyone sticking it out out there. Yeah, so this is a Peter Thiel operation, is my understanding. And I guess, do you think this is part of kind of a larger effort to sort of build the conservative parallel economy that we see online, where it's like, okay, we're going to move away from sort of the mainstream dating apps, we're going to have a right-wing one? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that all the right-wing internet entrepreneurs talk about. We're going to have our own Facebook, our own Twitter, our own dating apps. And I think there's a mix of motives here. On one hand, I mean, they can frankly just make a lot of money off of this if you have people pouring in to have the equivalent of like a a super like on this. I'm not really sure how the internal mechanisms of this dating app work. But also, this is an alluring concept for them, right? It's a platform where theoretically they cannot be rejected for a date because they're a Republican 
they're going to have to find new excuses for why it's not working out. So there's another thing going on with all this, which is that there's already a The Right Stuff dating service, as Zach and Noah Kirsch's uh, story investigates. And this one, they say they're not a right-wing one. They're for kind of people with high levels of education, so they have the ostensible right stuff. Basically, they're planning to sue them because they're saying, hey, we're the dating app called The Right Stuff. So this is already, (laughs) there's already a lot of issues going on here. Yeah, absolutely. Oh man, can you imagine like thinking that you're signing up for the Catch a Harvard Man dating app and you end up in the Mitch McConnell staffer pool? That could be some crossover, (laughs) but I think you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Well, so of course, I mean, The Right Stuff here joins a sort of long line of would-be sort of conservative dating networks. I feel like every year or so, I think there was like a Trump date, something like that. But to me, I mean, I think the most iconic one of these is Hannah. Hannah Date, the dating network for fans of Sean Hannity. Oh my goodness. Well, you know what? I'm actually not going to knock that because if you find someone on a site that's that specific, I think you are destined to find true love. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, if you love Sean Hannity reading his monologues every every day on his talk radio <laughs> and talking about how many plates he can bench press, <laughs> that is the app for you. Absolutely. You'll never run out of things to talk about. Well, the other thing, speaking of trademark stuff, I mean, isn't the right stuff also the name of like a neo-Nazi podcast? Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's sort of a kind of ambiguity I wouldn't want when people are like, so how'd you meet? I mean, it's already embarrassing enough to say Tinder. You don't want to be like the right stuff, not the neo-Nazi one, the just softer right-wing teal-backed one. It's not something that reads really well in a New York Times vows column. <laughs> so, Kelly, you've got an update on J.R. Majewski, the Ohio House candidate who's also a big QAnon fan, but now he's in trouble for something completely unrelated to QAnon. Yeah, it's amazing. You never think that uh, a candidate who made his name doing pro-Trump raps would land himself in anything but glory. But this is J.R. Majewski. He's running for the House in Ohio. And an interesting report came out of the Associated Press last week talking about Maybe J.R. Majewski, if not lied, then at the very least heavily embellished his military record. J.R. Majewski campaigns on being a veteran. He refers to himself as a combat veteran, alludes frequently to his time in Afghanistan. This Associated Press reporting can't find any evidence that Majewski was ever in Afghanistan at all. He was based in Japan for a while. He deployed for six months to Qatar, which is not a fighting zone. And it looks like what he did there was help load and unload airplanes. So there's never any record of him being in Afghanistan, let alone doing the hard combat missions that he references there. And I do mean that he's talking about these really grueling missions. He's saying he went 40 days without water. It was tough. He doesn't want to talk about it. So there is something going on there that if not valor theft, then sounds like strong valor borrowing. Yeah, it's a weird thing. I mean, because I was wondering this myself, whether you could describe this as valor as stolen valor. I mean, sort of, I guess. I mean, because as you said, he was in the military, but his claim to be a combat veteran is, I think, much disputed here. I mean, his argument is that sort of technically the military in recent years has considered being in Qatar a combat zone because you're supporting it. You were supporting the combat mission in Afghanistan. I certainly don't think that's what people think they mean when, when someone says you're in Afghanistan. But also, I mean, he did explicitly say he was in Afghanistan. He wasn't like, well, technically, I'm a combat veteran for benefits purposes. He said, oh, yeah, I couldn't take a shower for 40 days and all this stuff. And so after the story came out, because the AP got his military records here, and this is pretty explicit. So now he made the Afghanistan thing a big part of his sort of run for office because the main other thing about his political experience is that he painted a giant Trump sign on his lawn. And so you need typically you need a little more of a record to run on. And then, of 
of course, also not just a Trump sign, right, but a Q as well. And he's been deep in the, the QAnon decoding wars. That's certainly true. He was going on all these Q podcasts and kind of sorting it out. But so the AP says, look, I mean, this guy isn't a, really a combat veteran. He's making all these claims about this. And as a result, the Republicans, a lot of Republicans sort of distance themselves from him. This is a battleground district in Ohio against Marcy Captor, the Democrat. But it seems like they've basically given it up. But now there's a new twist that J.R. Majewski is saying, well, maybe I'm kind of a secret operative. Kelly, tell me about this. <laughs> So Jeremy Majewski, it's weird. I'm not sure I would totally call what he issued a denial of the AP reporting. He said, basically, you don't know what I did. All my records are classified. I can't even tell you where I was, which is really interesting. I'm not even sure if your records are classified. Can you disclose that? Can you discuss it constantly on the campaign trail? <laughs> like You're right, because he has talked about this constantly. I was reviewing old footage. He's in a podcast. Someone asks him point blank, did you serve in Afghanistan? And he says, yes, from 2002 to 2003. I mean, man, that's pretty black and white. You're right. I mean, the quote here is, I fought for this country for a lot of months over in the Middle East. I don't like talking about my military experience. Well, you I think things kind of would suggest do. otherwise. <laughs> yeah. The ultimate thing is to just be like, well, yeah, I'm like a special operator. Like, obviously, you can't know what I was doing in Kandahar or whatever. It's just such an incredible move is to say at first, like, well, OK, well, technically, maybe I was in Qatar or whatever. And then he's like, no, actually, I was in SEAL Team 6. <laughs> to be clear, he didn't explicitly say that, but he's saying he's in some kind of he's suggesting he was in some kind of like highly classified operation. I, it is also I mean, I don't think they typically take the guys whose jobs are to load planes and then maybe put them in, in like a big classified operation. But who knows? I mean, I, I do think this is just a sort of a genius move because what you have to do, I mean, this is a very like Trumpian move to put something into the realm of dispute. And so mm -hmm. the AP comes in and they say, look, Here's his military record. There you go. And so for if you're J.R. Majewski and you're trying to shore up your Republican support and kind of shut this story down, you can't really disprove it. But you can put it in a way where people can go like, well, you know, there's kind of different sides to that whole thing. I heard it was a little more complicated. Right. Absolutely. And I think it actually is kind of a brilliant play to like suggest he's some special forces operator. There's this huge conservative fetishization of those people. They borrow their aesthetics, the beard, which he has, and special ops lingo when they're talking about getting into the Capitol, or even this bleeds into campaigns. They use like military language. What's really funny to me, though, is in his pseudo denial, he claimed that the Associated Press story was specifically a disgrace to veterans. And I think this is really funny because one of the authors of that report is Daily Beast veteran and literal Marine veteran James Laporta. So that's quite an accusation to be slinging around. And if I could kind of riff on this, Jeremy Juski actually is a veteran. He was involved in military service. Now, whether that was scary combat or not, that's the subject of this debate now. But I think it's really funny that he appears to think he needs to embellish that record. And what's so funny about that to me is that there are so, so many people who've served who never saw any combat, right? I think this is such a quintessentially American experience, the experience of so many people I grew up with and who went into the military that you enlist, you hang out in Japan for who knows how Navy friends who have been in Japan. And no, you're not really shooting a gun out of a helicopter, but you did what they think is their duty and you come home and you're normal about it. 
I think that is plenty for someone to campaign on. So the idea that he thinks that he needs to go further, he needs to be this combat veteran is, if anything, that seems sort of insulting to military veterans. There's a suggestion that then not being a combat veteran is somehow less than or undeserving of really like touting its service by, by saying that he has to embellish it in this way. As long as we're on JR, who is a regular topic here on Fever Dreams, we have to talk about his kind of latest take on QAnon. So he, I mean, to be clear here, I like to think of our QAnon politicians on kind of a scale, going from someone who I think pretty cynically saw QAnon as a group that she couldn't disavow and sort of made some overtures to, but does not seem to have been a true believer herself, Lauren Boebert, all the way to someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is doing these like very intense like QAnon decodes and like debating who, like what were real Q clues and stuff, who's clearly very deep in it. And I would really put Majewski, if you look at his, his appearances on QAnon live streams and stuff like that, I would put him much more towards the Marjorie Taylor Green side. I mean, again, this is a guy who put a Q on his lawn and was really like using these hashtags all the time. But so the Q thing does not appear to have been as much of a turnoff, at least for the establishment Republican Party, as his kind of quasi stolen valor here. But recently, I think a week or two ago, I saw a local news reporter asked him about it. And Majewski was like, well, what I do in my personal life is is private to me. The idea that kind of like you can have like, I mean, it's almost like a religion, right? Like asking someone about their religion yeah. <laughs> would be like, hey, Hey, that's none of your business, pal. And then he said, I don't really know a lot about that Q stuff. That's not my thing. And I know this is the thing we see a lot from these QDOC candidates, but it's just enraging how obviously they're lying about it. I mean, dude, this isn't like a guy who says where we go on, we go all or something. And this guy who's saying, who's saying like the deep stuff, he's saying like, trust the plan. He's saying you were watching a movie. I mean, these are like the big slogans. I mean, that's the kind of stuff he's into. And then to suddenly say like, oh, what are you talking? I mean, there are, vid- there are videos of this guy on all these QDOC shows. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I, I just got a vent. No, it's absolutely right. This guy does not appear to have the most honest record, right? He said previously before he was a campaigner, he said, I believe everything that's been put out from Q. That's not someone who might be Q sympathetic and accidentally shares a meme with a Q watermark or something. That's someone who's like steeped in the lore. They're talking about it. They're decoding. And for him to be like, oh, I don't know anything about that. I mean, man, come on. We we have the internet. We can Google. It's my personal business. Also, I don't know anything about it. JR, you got to pick one. Got to pick one defense. Well, so Kelly, what's the larger input here of J.R. Majewski's anti in this Ohio race? Well, it's going to be interesting because for a long time, this was a really safe Democratic district. It got redistricted. Now it's in a majority Trump area. So it was a really winnable seat for Majewski. It would be a good pickup for House Republicans. But there's evidence that he might blow this. Like he might actually drop the bag that hard. And the day after this AP report, the RNC pulled $1 million in campaign funding for him. So there is real indications that Republican honchos say, "Mm, maybe we're not going to spend our money here. Maybe we'll let him fight it out on his own. And he might not actually win that one. Well, we will have to see how it goes for JR. Kelly, speaking of QAnon, there's another guy, another big guy who's getting into into QAnon as well. But he's kind of a bigger deal than JR Majewski. His name is Donald Trump. (laughs) <laughs> so this has been going on for a couple years, but I mean, really, just just in the past week or two, Trump is like all in on QAnon. He's getting the where we go one, we go all knuckle tattoos. He's doing the whole thing. <laughs> so so Kelly, what is going on with Trump and Q? And why do you think this is happening now? Oh, dude. So Trump, it's funny because it's like we're always like sounding the alarm, but it's like we, we mean it now. He's really doing it. No, 
Trump is like on a QAnon tear lately. I know you saw this on Truth Social late last week. Trump is up like all hours of the night, retruthing explicitly Q boomer memes. And like I said, he shared a lot of Q influencers before on Twitter. And we would be like, is he sharing Trust the Plan 101? But like, this goes beyond. This is just uncut. Well, you shared some really good examples of these memes he was sharing. Do you have a favorite? Because I think people should like get a flavor of what Trump is posting in the early hours. Yeah. So this is a he posted a QAnon video. And like for the past few years, we were dealing with Trump like retweeting QAnon users. But often the messages weren't like really deep in QAnon themselves or really explicitly pro Q. But in the past few weeks, there was this incident at his rally, which we've got some new information on where they play this. QAnon song. He posted a picture of himself wearing a QAnon pin, sort of an, an edited picture, a meme. But this video that he, he shared a few days ago was just I mean, you would only, it served no purpose besides being about QAnon. I mean, and I think that that's what makes it unique from the stuff he was posting maybe a year ago. So, for example, I think for me, I think my favorite one is this picture of Trump. And he's wearing like almost like a weird like major uniform or something. Like he looks like a kind of like 1930s sailor guy. And he's holding a kid, like a crying kid. The caption says, pain is coming, which is a QAnon phrase. You should have stayed away from the children. Hashtag save our children. And so the message being that Trump is going to come punish the cannibal pedophiles who have terrorized this child that he's holding. I mean, just the, I don't know if he saw that. He was like, yeah. <laughs> I did. It's wild. Like just the levels of Photoshop going on. Cause yeah, he is in kind of like a, a, like some kind of like military officer uniform. There are all these things that you'll never see Trump do. One, wearing uniform. Two, holding a baby. I've never seen him do that. But yeah. <laughs> right, <this> idea... <laughs> right. Yeah. Comforting a child is not a common image we see of Trump. No, no. And this is, I mean, like we we're saying, this is pure Q stuff, right? This isn't save the children. Like it's not even associated with more mainstream, but still insidious Republican talking points about not wanting books about gay people in schools. Like, again, that's, I think, beyond the pale, but it's not even pinned to that. This is pretty explicitly referencing the language about Hillary Clinton drinks baby blood. And it's just that it's wild to see it put that clearly on Trump's truth social page. There's also he's posting straight up like QAnon source text now that Q dropped that said, to be blunt, game over, Q. I mean, what can you say? I think the interesting thing is here, people often say to me like, well, how many QAnon followers are still around after Biden got inaugurated and stuff? And I say it's kind of difficult because the number one Q told them all to stop talking about Q and told yeah. them to like, gotta go undercover. And then the QAnon thinking has been become so mainstream in the party that you can talk about stolen elections, you can talk about groomers and all. You're using a lot of QAnon stuff. The QAnon brand, I think, has become toxic in some ways. And so people no longer want to be like, yes, I believe this guy Q is deep inside the Trump administration, whatever. So kind of Trump is like the last person left doing in a weird, ironically, he's like the last guy doing just some straight up Q signaling. Like you got to read the breadcrumb. <laughs> As you said, I mean, he's posting pictures that say Q+, which is what they call Trump. And these very kind of like images of like Trump at a chessboard or Trump like with his like fingers crossed menacingly. It moves and counter moves. The silent war continues. <laughs> It's amazing that that is like someone who is the commander in chief of the world's largest military and he's doing what's indistinguishable from 
post I'd see my most divorced Facebook friend doing. It's interesting to see him resort to these kind of petty boomer memes when he does have actually significant power. I mean, this is a like the metaphor of like the frog slowly being boiled in water is used a lot. But I mean, if you had gone back to 2018 when QAnon was kicking off and a guy blocked a bridge by the Hoover Dam and stuff and said, yeah, so one day Trump's going to be posting a bunch of Q stuff. Because I remember that time people were, oh, who cares about QAnon? Oh, it's over. Oh, it's not a real thing. Whatever. Well, now Trump's into it and people are like, oh, well, it's not ideal. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not a big deal. But I mean, look, like he's the leader of the Republican Party. And he's like, even accused stuff. We've moved so far beyond. Like all the stuff that we were screaming about and people were like, this sounds really niche. Like you need to log off of 8chan, which yes, we did. But it's the mainstream now. It's completely like, oh, well, you're Thursday night. What's he going to do? Reviewing this, I think I have a very favorite post from his posting spree. It's not explicitly QAnon, but it's a painting of Jesus holding out his hands. And it says, Jesus is the greatest. President, president at real Donald Trump is the second greatest. It's like... I think that's kind of heresy, right? I'm not steeped in religious lore, but yeah. If a random like blue check person did that on Twitter, people would be like, oh, this person's a creep. Whatever, they retweeted some fan. But like, but this is like, this is Trump. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Thank you. <laughs> some of that makes me wonder, like how much of actual QAnon literature does Trump understand? And how much does he just think this makes him look really cool? Does he also, like J.R. Majewski, want to be the operative and Photoshop next to a Punisher skull? I'm just wondering, like, does he do this just because it makes him feel warm and fuzzy? Or does he also trust the plan? That would be really something if he starts being like, none of those generals asked me to take down the cabal. <laughs> Wait a minute. Like, why did, oh, the mega woke General Milley wouldn't let me take down the cabal. As long as we're talking about QAnon, I did want to circle back on the rally from a few weeks ago where folks held up their fingers or held up a single finger and people were saying, is this a QAnon thing? Is it not? We kind of held our fire on this because it wasn't totally clear. But some new reporting out of the Washington Post from Isaac Arnsdorf suggests that, yeah, it's a QAnon thing because the group of people holding up their finger, this was notable because it was only like this one group. And so it made me think, why is it only that group? Is this like a local church thing or what's the deal? It was a QAnon group. It's none other than the negative 48 group. No. But folks folks may better know, <laughs> will better know, as the JFK Jr. in Dallas people. Uh, I hate when all the storylines come together in one concise place. <laughs> well, I'm kind of kicking myself because I know they've been traveling around to Trump rallies, and so I, I should have assumed it was them. But basically, it's them. And so the, the Post has an interesting story basically about the ongoing tensions between Trump security and these people. They really don't want the finger thing to happen again. But the problem is, in the past, there was there's been a years long ban on QAnon merchandise at the events, but you kind of like are you going to make them put mittens on? How do you prevent them from doing the finger thing again? There's kind of some brushing up. I think they generally want this group to look a lot less visible at the rallies. Yeah, I think they should hand out those like foam rubber number one fingers like they do <laughs> at sports games. So it's everybody doing it. It doesn't mean anything. This is just this is just the uniform now. We're just saying we're number one. It's not about JFK Jr. coming back to life. <laughs> That is that is truly wild that it was them. I mean, they really got a group that has really kind of been stumbling and bumbling and going through all these kind of fractures and all that kind of stuff, but they're still at it. Inspirational story. <laughs> all right, Will, who's our guest this week? Right. So this week, Kelly, we have Michael Schaefer. He's a columnist at Politico who writes a great column on goings on around Washington and politics. He has a story about a website called Conservateur, which promises to be the conservative answer to Vogue that I wanted to talk with him about. 
You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Fever dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. Okay, this week on the podcast, we have Michael Schaefer. He's a senior editor at Politico and the author of their Capital City column. He's also a host of the local DC podcast, CityCast DC, which we'll get to a little later on. Mike, I wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about some of your columns. In particular, you one about a website you call sort of a, a MAGA answer to Vogue magazine. Tell me about Conservateur. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, I don't think Anna Winter is losing a lot of sleep. These young women who had been in the Trump White House, one of them had done a turn at Fox, of course, creating a fashion and lifestyle website aimed at conservatives and with a lot of sort of the joys of monogamy kind of content and a lot of a fair amount of just general trolling the libs content, as well as some more straight up fashion content and then coverage of fashion icons like Lara Trump. (laughs) Here's the thing that's interesting to me, because look, there are in our world a lot of young people in their 20s who decide they're going to start a new lifestyle brand. And I think the actuarial stats are pretty bad on lifestyle brand attempts. But what is interesting to me and interesting in Washington, I think, is this is sort of part of this path of like a speciation, like right and left have different sports they like and different bars they go to and different fashions they wear and different neighborhoods they live in. And I grew up in D.C. And there was a a time, like not that long ago, when the kind of people who came to work in politics here, they were, I mean, there were some differences, but they weren't that different. They were all the same basic kind of like college weenie. That's what I thought was interesting. So otherwise, I probably wouldn't have taken the time to shoot at a fish in a barrel. But I thought it was actually was fascinating. And they were quite thoughtful about it. Mike, what's so interesting to me is I've seen this kind of surge of conservative Vogue wannabes. There's also EV Magazine. It's launching a Peter Thiel-backed period tracking app, which is personally disgusting to me. But If I were you, I would really want Peter Thiel to know all about my period. <laughs> absolutely. I, I, you know, I think I, I'll actually just put it in a spreadsheet and send it to him. But anyway, do you see a broader effort on the part of conservatives to like make this glossy, female-focused media? I mean, I think it's a effort to make kind of everything. And it fits with the sort of conservative self-mythology of we are oppressed, we are marginalized, we are treated unfairly. And in the case of these folks behind the conservateur, it's like, oh, Melania Trump was never given a cover of Vogue, even though she's so beautiful. And the fashion industry is hopelessly woke, and they can point to stories in women's magazines about some of them about like how to have orgies or whatever. And some of them 
uh, more like explicitly political. But at any rate, it kind of fits the everyone is mean to us, everyone discriminates against us narrative. They are so mad that Melania was never on Vogue. I'm thinking to the male analog to that, Trump had the fake Time magazine cover of himself in his office. What do you think drives this obsession with magazine covers? It's a weird thing. I mean, I think there's like a thing on the right, because again, the right has become in a lot of ways in our country, a kind of like culture, like a subculture with all of the internal things that make being part of a subculture fun and just sort of separate meanings attached to words and memes and symbols and in-jokes and so on. And the idea is we're creating a separate reality because we are so terribly, terribly, terribly mistreated in the other reality. But the funny thing is there seems to be like more of a worship, at least than in, in my world, which is full of like pinko journalists and intellectuals and stuff. There seems to be much more of a worship for traditional forms of authentic validation when they happen. So if there is, I mean, you always wind up hearing that like Ted Cruz or Tom Cotton went to Princeton and Harvard, right? Because they're like our smart guys. And Alex Berenson, the Twitter figure of anti-vax fame, the fact that he used to work at the New York Times, that is always mentioned on the right. He has the validation of this prestige newspaper and yet has turned apostate. So I think, know this as a former magazine editor, I'm sad to say that magazine covers don't quite have the import that they once did in our culture. But among folks who think it was so unfair that Melania was excluded from Vogue, they are still sort of held up as this like amazing thing. So Mike, what kind of fashion are we working with here at Conservator? <laughs> it seems kind of an all-American style. What are they up to? That's how they'd call it. It's a little like, kind of little sorority look, I think. It's, there's some there's a lot of cowboy boots involved, some some cowboy hats. Christian girl autumn. Yeah. <laughs> Cabela blondes. <laughs> I have to tell you, I'm not necessarily in a position to judge and evaluate, but again, I, I think Anna Winter is probably not going to be losing a lot of sleep here. But I will say this about their site. It's like pretty nicely done. Like the design is tasteful. And I mean, it's not, it's not like a complete joke, even if the, the fashion is probably not people that you are going to be hanging out with. One thing you hit on in this piece is that conservateur, first of all, am I saying that right? Conservateur? Yes. Yes. Okay, great. There's a lot of like kind of like faux French going on. One thinks of parleur, parlay. So with conservateur, I mean, it sort of the MO seems to be we're going to kind of package this thing in a relatively mainstream format. It's going to be a fashion website and we're kind of going to have some politics around the edges. But as you note, this is not the first website to try this. I mean, it, it recalls for me, Andrew Breitbart's politics is downstream of culture saying and then constantly these guys are trying to do that, which is sort of package fl- making what looks like a general interest product with a little conservatism slipped in. But as you note, these things typically fail and just become like really hard right blogs. Right. And I think if you look at, I mean, just if you look back at like when the Daily Caller was founded, right, it was like they said, and I think they meant we are going to be doing like, we'll do good movie reviews. We'll do things that aren't necessarily like pieces of political argument. And we will be highbrow and we will be conservative insofar as we have politics. But the service first was to doing good stuff. And I think financially it just didn't work. And so it was like eventually it became a kind of race for the gutter of like racism and whatever. Here's the thing, like for this, these women who are doing the fashion site, look, the odds of success of starting a fashion magazine, whatever your politics are probably pretty low. If you are on the right, I suppose 
you do have this out. If business goes as badly for you, you can always switch to like a more explicitly red, meaty, trolley kind of politics. And that might help you pay back some of your investors. At worst, you could maybe get kicked off of Instagram and then kind of make a big fit about that. Maybe get a fundraising campaign going. Yet another place that's unfair. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing is that the, also, again, this is sort of a measure of where we are as a society. You could start anything and call it conservative. I'm going to start a conservative car insurance company. We're going to sell conservative car insurance policies. And they could be no different in any way from regular car insurance policies. But there's a certain percentage of the population that feel so alienated from mainstream America that they're like, yeah, I want to, I'll do that conservative car insurance company. And so it is a pretty smart business niche to exploit. Yeah, I mean, you say that Dan Bongino, the talk radio host, has a new payment processor just for credit card payments called Parallel Economy. And so it's totally just similar to anyone else who would do your business side payments, but this one's for conservatives. Right. And I think this is just sort of where we're at. So Mike, you had a different, really interesting piece recently about obituaries for election denying politicians. And it just indicates how many there are that this is even a genre that you can explore. But what trends did you find when you were reviewing these obits? So I'm kind of obsessed with obituaries in general. I love them. I think that it's a, it's a great form. There were three members of Congress who voted to overturn the 2020 election have died. It's not suspicious. They were, they died separately and then, <laughs> <of a laughs> disease in two cases and a car accident in one. In all three, the obits in a lot of places didn't mention that they had voted to overturn the 2020 election. This is the most important vote of your career. And if you did that, it sort of ought to be on your permanent record. And the, the obit is like the first draft of your permanent record. What I found out is there's other stuff going on, including that like obituary desks have been much shrunk. And oftentimes, particularly if, if a member of Congress dies in a way that's like newsmaking, one of Jackie Walorski died in a terrible, tragic car accident, or get one of them died from COVID, the obit's probably going to be done by someone who covers the Hill. And in the culture of the Hill, it's like, look, these people weren't the author of this effort to overturn the election. They were just backbenchers who voted for it. And we don't, in a, in a normal obit for a member of Congress, it's not going to say he voted for Obamacare unless he was like the author of Obamacare. It would say, would rather say like Senator Smith cared about industrial policy or something, if that was like their real cause. But I think if that is just like the normal part of the culture of covering Congress. It's a way that sort of normal cultural behavior winds up sweeping under the rug or excusing this enormous, unprecedented thing that happened. So listen, I'm, I'm based in upstate New York. I'm not a DC gal. So why do you think that culture exists where people don't necessarily include that in their permanent record? Is it uncouth to mention? Why? I think there's probably a little of a, little of a lot of things, many of them not malign in intent. One part is if you're a sophisticated person covering <clears throat> Congress, you'll know like sometimes people vote, take a tough vote for the team or take it because of some calculation in their home district and they know their vote's going to lose anyway, but they'll take it. And why act like a rube and get so excited about that? My answer to that is because this isn't just a regular vote. This was an enormous thing in our country. And then there's like a more prosaic, like we have a society where there's a kind of aversion to speaking ill of the dead. I think even if a lot of unbiased reporters would not want to say this vote was a bad thing, I think everyone kind of knows it was. And so why speak ill of this lovely person who was beloved by her staff and her colleagues and blah, blah, blah. My answer to that is, well, that speaking ill is kind of our job. We're assholes <laughs> in the media. That's sort of what we're supposed to do. And I think that's a, a reason why it's really good for news organizations to have dedicated professional obituarists because one they're better at that stuff at figuring out how to write up 
the shit parts of your life or your record in a way that's not gratuitous, but also doesn't hide them. And then two, on a, again, on a practical level, if you're a beat reporter and you're covering Congress and a beloved member has died and their staff and their colleagues are terribly devastated, you kind of know on some level, boy, if I write an obit about like this shitty thing they did, these folks are going to be mad at me and upset. And then I'm not going to get tips from them and stories from them. And the incentives are all screwed up at that point. And a lot of people will think, yeah, sure, I'll piss them off if I get some awesome scoop, but I'm not going to piss them off for some write-up of a death that I'm doing in real time anyway. I think those are all great points. And it's also, I think, so so magnified by social media. I mean, I, I'm thinking of recent obits where someone who died, either a Republican, was described as hard right or arch conservative or something, and then people get all upset about that. Then as a result, I think you don't really get to get at the truth of the person's legacy. That's right. And I think this is one of the things about where we're at as a society. There is such fear of backlash and fear of being called biased or partisan that people kind of hold their fire or they say things in the most milk toast possible way, which is like one, like boring reading and two, often like pretty bad journalism. So Michael, you do a lot of your columns about sort of the state of Washington. What are some other observations you have? I mean, where are we in this kind of like post-Trump or this Trump interregnum, the Biden administration? I mean, what do you think about what's going on in DC these days? So I got hired to kind of write a I don't know, anthropological column about Washington. And the metaphor I use is if, if I was doing this in Hollywood, I would not be writing about movies, but I'd be writing the shit out of studios. And if you think about what that means, that's like, what are our studios here? It's like the media and like the government as a workplace and the political operative industry and so on, law and influence industry. I think in terms of like polite Washington society, we, there's just a lot of, there's kind of no agreed upon way to deal with the legacy of the insurrection and the attempted overthrow of the government and the various things of the Trump years that were at the time considered like, this is a terrible break from norms. And I think there's a lot of folks who just kind of want it all to go away. Like it's over now, let's just go back to 100% normal. And I don't think that's quite sufficient, but I think there's a lot of people who in the name both of their business, which requires having people from all parties around because you're trying to get close to power, or in the name just of their social conventions, or of the name in the name of people. A lot of insiders here like to flatter themselves that they're not partisans. All in the name of all of that kind of points to like just to say everything's back to normal and oh, that January 6th has been dealt with and blah, blah, blah. I think that's a real tendency. It is, I will say, if, if you'd asked me to bet two years ago, I would have bet that it was even more memory holds than it has been. So remember at the beginning, this is like a little bit different, but I remember at the beginning of the of the Trump years thinking there was like this huge like tug of war in the bosom of like permanent Washington, where on the one hand, you had a genuine loathing of President of Trump. The loathing was not, I don't think, because of the racism or the politics or any of the stuff he's accused of. It was because he dismissed and disdained expertise, which at the end of the day is all that permanent Washington really has. They've got credentials. So you had this genuine loathing. On the other hand, you had, this is a class with like a 200-year unbroken track record of tropism towards power. And I would have thought the tropism would have won. But I think over the course of those years, you really didn't. I mean, there was a few exceptions or outliers in the administration. But in the main, you didn't see Trump world figures 
sort of brought into the salons of the permanent Washington class. And I was sort of surprised by that, that it went down that way. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, in terms of sort of establishment Washington's reaction to Trumpism, you have this other column about Michael Beschloss, the presidential historian who people may know as the guy who once tweeted, who would tweet like, here's a picture of JFK's boat and stuff kind of like, like presidential, like arcana. He's a real like venerator of the presidency. That was at least in his public style. But more recently, you described him as this sort of archetype of the, of a sort of radicalized defender of the establishment in the face of Trump. What do you think's going on there? I think it's the funny thing. These There's a, an archetype of person, and I made him my archetypal character, who's always been like deep in the establishment, whose personal style has been non-combative towards any ideology, who's more like drawing on anecdotes, mostly about like great men of history, sometimes about scoundrels, but like the scoundrels are always dealt with in our history. And he looked out at the, during the Trump years and thought, you know, our democracy is under attack, our norms are being dangerously eroded. And he began saying so. And of course, he's a historian. He's like an actual PhD. Historians are like, he's not a historian. But he talks about history, writes about history, goes on TV about history. So he began, he's got this awesome Twitter feed, which is just like a bunch of pictures, but like the pictures suddenly started getting pretty dark and they'd be like, oh, there's a picture of Mussolini. And they would be in, in some way connected to some aspect of the news of the day. So on the day of the Mar-a-Lago raid, he tweeted a picture of the Rosenbergs, that just to say the atomic spy couple who were eventually executed. And that's the radical part that I was joking that the establishment part is that when I asked him about that, the first thing he said is like, just so you know, I would not call for Trump's execution. <laughs> like He didn't want me to think he was like a, one of those, like a wild man. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of people who felt incredibly strongly about things during the Trump years and were just unaccustomed to feeling incredibly strongly. Incredibly strong feelings were for other people. They were for less sophisticated people. They were for people on the margins. And I live in Georgetown. I can't live on, I'm not on the margins, is the kind of logic. There. And so it, it was an uncomfortable thing. And I think for some people, they just love it. Like all of a sudden, after all these years, they get to be the rebel and they read history books about rebels and they admire them, but they never got to be one. That explains all the Star Wars rebel flags flying during the Trump administration. It's like, you have a real world of events happening to draw on, but go for the fictional canon. Why not? <laughs> so finally, speaking of official Washington, Michael, you had this great story just recently about NPR correspondent Nina Totenberg's book about about her friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I ran into you at the bookstore when you were picking this book up. I was eager to see what would emerge from it. And what emerged was a great column that really kind of tears into her coziness with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the the sort of, what you want to say, sort of the things she did not report on seemingly to preserve that relationship. Tell me about that. I mean, so when I ran into you in the bookstore, they'd asked me if I wanted a bag. And I said, yes, because I was afraid you were at this event for like a book about the Seth Rich conspiracy theory and it was full of righteous people. And I was, I think I was afraid they would think me some sort of like establishmentarian if I was reading this <laughs> book. So I, I paid the extra nickel for the bag. It's interesting because I, I feel like this book came out and a lot of people have said, certainly I felt like, huh, it's kind of weird that NPR is a Supreme Court reporter is like best friends with Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the point that she was like on her medical team and stuff. I thought maybe they had a couple dinners. Her husband was, she was not. And she, oh, excuse she me. made a big like she set up rules for herself. And I think those rules were probably not what like a media ethicist would say is adequate, but I believe she stuck to it. And it was like, listen, we're gonna have her over to dinner. Totenberg's husband's a surgeon. And she writes that basically they were very good friends. They, they had her around a lot. 
And she was, spent so much time calling him for advice as, look, if I was going through cancer and I had a friend who's a doctor, I would do the same thing. But he eventually did whatever you got to do to get access to someone's records. But she, Nina, did not look at those records, would leave the room or not be in the room when they did the calls, et cetera. That was sort of her. We reporters, you know this, we can sort of create our own rules. And if we stick to them, we think we're good to go. My bigger knock on Nina in the book is that the vibe of the book is like the basic goodwill and good intent and worldview of these judges is unquestioned. And it kind of feels like, well, we're all on the same team. That's where I found it really tough to take. I mean, it's like a tough situation to be in. You, be, you, you come to like people, you become friends with them. You have to, like, at some point, call on your inner sociopath as a reporter to avoid that. Look, I've been a journalist, like, a long time, and I've never known a journalist who I think is a crook. I don't think there are very many of them. I don't think people intentionally, like, pull punches on behalf of their friends or on behalf of whatever side they're on in some political debate. What I do think happens when you get too close to either an individual person or like a scene is it's like you, you don't pull punches, you lose the ability to see that the punch was even throwable in the first place. And I think that's what I felt like was going on in this book. There's this scene, they have a dinner party right after the Heller decision, which undid DC's gun laws. And everybody's soup bowl has a little decoration in it. And the decoration is a squirt gun. And everyone laughs. Ha ha. It's so funny. Well, and Scalia is at this dinner party, right? That's what I forgot to mention. Scalia was a guest (laughs) at this dinner party, the man who wrote that decision. And it gives the vibe, and I'm sure the context probably excused some of it, but it gives the vibe of like, all of this stuff is just trivial. All these decisions are just trivial, and it's all good intent, and the people who are actually going to get hurt as a result of it don't really figure into that vibe. And I think that's the danger in journalism. I think anywhere where there is sort of like a culture around what is being covered. I assume if you're like a reporter who covers Hollywood or who covers Wall Street or automobile industry or anything, there is a similar kind of cultural mind meld you can get pulled into. I think the Supreme Court is especially susceptible to that because it's like we treat it like this special like priestly culture. It's like Oz. They hand down these Olympian rulings and there's only a small number of us who have the credentials to even interpret the secret language of these people. And it's crap. It is also especially dangerous if you are in that small number. The column you produced from that is great and I think talks a lot about, it speaks to the challenges of reporting on in in kind of Washington's biggest establishments. Briefly, Mike, you're also the co-host of CityCast DC, a new DC news podcast. Personally, I hear all the time from people who dump on DC. Oh, they say it's a boring town, whatever. I like it. Briefly, what's one cool thing going on in DC? Well, how do you mean? Well, I mean, I don't know. Like, I mean, something exciting that you might talk about on the podcast. Like, what's the story you're interested in in DC these days? Well, the one that we taped recently that I thought was most interesting was sort of what the hell is going to happen to downtown Washington? DC has the highest work from home rate in the country. This is partly because it's got more of the kind of work that can be done remotely. But there is a lot of businesses, a public transit system, a public safety that depend on having lots of people walking around. And when there aren't, that's a huge change. And for people like me who like cities, who care about cities, who have watched with kind of amazement as this incredibly violent and shrinking D.C. of my childhood has turned into this vibrant and growing D.C., we worry about what's going to happen to that. And I think for people not in D.C., I got to believe that in some way, if, if people who make decisions for the country are living in a city that they think is like dangerous and they think of 
urban areas as like inherently dangerous, they're going to maybe make different decisions than they they would otherwise make. DC is such a funny place, though. You've covered the local city, too, where it's maybe the only place that I've ever been where the low information voters are often some of the like richest and best educated people in town. You meet people who can tell you like what percentage Michael Dukakis got in Iowa in 1988, but can't tell you who their DC council member is. And that's like a really funny and strange situation. And I think it's one that's kind of abetted, unfortunately, by a lot of the local media that I used to do too. Both you and I are veterans of Washington City Paper, where we would kind of act like, hey man, if you don't know where Ward 7 is, like you're an asshole and a racist. And that's pretty alienating. One of the cool things about this podcast, and it's like a busman's holiday for me, because I get to talk about this stuff I used to do for a living, is the idea that we want to sort of engage people and have a conversation, like a, a really smart and knowledgeable conversation with the people who are reporting on what's going on. But to do it at a level of like, come on in, this is a conversation you can take part in. There's no secret language that requires exotic interpretation. Great. Well, we've been talking with Michael Schaefer. He's a senior editor at Politico, where he writes the Capital City column. He's also the co-host of the CityCast DC podcast, and he's on Twitter at Michael Schaefer. That's S-C-H-A-F-F-E-R. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks, man. All right, Kelly, you traveled down into the guts of hell, and now you've returned with a little imp to share with us. <laughs> what do we have in fresh hell? Well, well, it's spooky season. It's time to start panicking about what's in our children's Halloween candy. And this year we have a special treat. It's not razors and apples. It's not marijuana lace gummies. It is what the Republicans are calling rainbow fentanyl. Now, Okay, so this is apparently an existing thing. It's drugs pressed into a pill form that's been going on since, what, 70s, 80s. But there's a new scare out now. Republicans have really latched onto this idea that there is rainbow fentanyl. It's being pushed down to children. And in the past week, both Kevin McCarthy and Rona McDaniel, the RNC chair, have been on Fox literally claiming that a school official seized fentanyl from a child. They touched it and they died. So. There's a few things going on here. One is that there's been misreporting on fentanyl for a long time, overstating how it crosses the blood barrier. You cannot overdose on fentanyl just by touching it. And also, reporters who dug into the story found that the official in question was alive and well. They probably honestly just had a panic attack. But that hasn't stopped Fox and Ron McDaniel from talking about what will happen when this gets into children's Halloween candy. McDaniel on Fox said, quote, every mom in the country is worried. What if this gets into my kid's Halloween basket, the rainbow fentanyl? (laughs) I guess my question is, so, I mean, this has been such a strange story bubbling up. What is sort of the use case for rainbow fentanyl? Like, why is the, it's just like powdered, it's a colored powdered fentanyl? So, actually, Rolling Stone had some genuinely good reporting on this with, you know, people who actually study drug policy. And they said, so this thing isn't actually a new drug. It's not even a new format. Basically, drug manufacturers will press drugs like fentanyl into pills so that they look more like the name brand versions, the opioids that you could get from an actual pharmaceutical company. So these things are not being sold because they're cool and they're rainbow. They're just orange because the person said, I'm going to make an orange one today. But then they get get these scaremongering pictures of a whole bunch of different colored pills. And people say, oh, those look kind of like Smarties Candy. And who eats Smarties Candy? Children. Who's going to get the rainbow fentanyl in their Halloween baskets? And it's 
a lot of breathless extrapolating right now. Got it. Okay, so the fentanyl itself is not rainbow colored. It's sort of packaged into these pills. I got it. Right. The rainbow fentanyl thing, I'm just still kind of struck on the fact that it's called rainbow fentanyl which would make me think that the drug itself is rainbow colored, like at the source, but not really. No, this is fear that it's any color besides white. Because <laughs> if you had just called this like pills, <laughs> don't take these pills, then I think people would be like, yeah, okay. But I don't think that's as catchy as rainbow fentanyl. No, not at all. And they've managed to kind of like, kind of wedge this into an anti-Democrat talking point. They're saying that where does fentanyl come from? Mexico. So because of the open border and Joe Biden, that your child is going to eat fentanyl thinking that they are a pack of Skittles. This is, I, I believe the narrative we're supposed to be extrapolating here. You touched on the kind of ongoing panic around cops who sort of touch fentanyl or like walk through air where fentanyl is floating <laughs> and have kind of like a quasi overdose. A lot of great reporters on this story, including Zachary Siegel, who has written that I think this is relevant for us because here at Fever Dream, we love our panics and following hysteria. And this idea that there, this is sort of a cop, like a cop as a like identity class hysteria over fentanyl. And I can certainly understand if there was a bunch of stories about reporters accidentally overdosing on fentanyl from like touching a <laughs> fentanyl on a notebook or something. I might start to fear that. But basically his argument is that the cops have become so like panicked about this idea of this these fentanyl overdoses that like scientifically can't happen from just like uh, like touching it that they then when they get the idea that oh maybe I touched the fentanyl they kind of essentially have a panic attack. That's exactly it. There's even a phenomenon. I think it's called nocebo or something. But it's exactly that. It's this genuinely biological function, but it's it's a panic attack related to the idea that you touch something dangerous and so you start exhibiting the side effects of it. And we've seen so many just incredible cases of this over the summer. There have been multiple police departments that put out press releases and videos all but having the in the arms of the angel music playing over top talking about their brave deputies who touched a drug and are now in the hospital. And again, panic attacks are real. I'm not going to dismiss them, but every single drug expert says you can't actually overdose from touching fentanyl like that. And I think it's even bled over a little bit further. There was a mega, mega viral video and post this summer from a cop's wife who said she saw a dollar bill on the ground in a fast food restaurant or something. And she went to pick it up, just picked up a dollar. And there must have been a trace amount of fentanyl there, probably deliberately so that they could get people hooked on fentanyl. And from touching that dollar was enough to hospitalize it. Again. I'd get hooked on <laughs> touching dollar bills, I guess. Yeah. And so, and again, every single one of these goes viral and you see it all over your Facebook before any kind of drug expert can step in and say, nope, you just need a Xanax. I think this is the logical endpoint of this scare is that it's coming for the children. And it's a rehash of the same panics we've seen about razors and apples since we were kids. But this one has a really, oh, I think just kind of tortured political bent to it. It is remarkable just the sort of bringing in the Halloween hoax season, whether it's razors or more recently, we've seen this idea that jokers are giving out weed edibles to kids. And now like kind of a much more menacing one. And as I think you pointed out, I mean, there's also kind of the as Republicans try to make the focus on the border and immigration ahead of the midterms, there's a political valence to it as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm still looking for that house that is giving out weed gummies. So if you find it, please <laughs> tell me I will report that information very responsibly to local law enforcement. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond. From politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.